week it was great to uh, see standing room only as we had Tim with us sharing and uh, we're two congregations together. Great to be able to be together in God's presence and, and see what God was doing amongst us there. And today I want to continue uh, a theme that we've been looking at for a little while, just a few weeks now. Um, but it, it does actually follow on from what Tim was sharing last week and kind of links back to what I was saying a couple of weeks before that. And uh, James was sharing as well about God is still holy. Um, but we're going to look today at God is still king. Now, I wonder who's, who's had a job, the same job for the longest time. Anybody had the same job for longer than 10 years? 20 years. The same job for longer than 20 years. Same long, job for longer than 25 years. 30 years? 35 years? Albert, you win. How, how long have you had the same job, Albert? Okay, 38. You lose, you still lose. Because this, 43, 43, oh well done. You still lose because this lady's served her, in her particular job for a bit longer. So um, well done, that's brilliant. 42 years, 43 years, different companies. So same, the same kind of career path. That's brilliant, isn't it? It's impressive. Um, this particular lady is on the screen, uh, the Queen, uh, ascended to the throne on February the 6th, 1952. I won't ask if anyone remembers it, because I know some people will. Um, but some, some may have bought TV specially to watch on the occasion, or gone round to a neighbour's house to watch that grand occasion. And today, on the 4th of November, I'm reliably informed that we are 24,378 days on from the day that she took the throne. That's 66 years, 8 months, and 28 days. That's impressive, isn't it? 66 years. You could clap, but she's not here, so she won't hear you. Um, eight months and 28 days. She's still got a little way to go, though, before she beats this lady. Anyone know who this is? This lady called Monica Evans. You may never have heard of her. She lives in Royal Leamington Spa, and she's a bookkeeper. And uh, she has worked for the same company that supplies aeronautical parts uh, for, let me just check the, the time, uh, for 71 years. So she's, yeah, she started work at 19, and uh, she's still working there now. She's, she started off pen and paper, and everything she does is computerized now, uh, keeping the books in the company, and she's worked there for 71 years. That's impressive, it's impressive isn't it? It's a long time. And uh, she's got no thought of retiring. When she was interviewed in 2017, uh, she was asked if she had any thought of retiring. She said, no, I'm only 89. Why would I want to retire? I love that kind of atmosphere, that kind of attitude and get up and go. Um, mine's got up and gone, but hers is impressive, isn't it? Um, but I don't really want to talk about her, just this kind of longevity of service. But I was thinking about the Queen and just thinking how impressive her reign has been and how many changes she must have noticed and seen since 1952, how the world has changed so completely since then. And the things that people took for granted uh, then are different now, and the things we take for granted now didn't exist then, and just this, this whole shift that must have gone on in all those years in her reign. What an incredible time. And I, you can see I want to talk about God's kingship today, and, and I've put the picture of our queen up because the Bible has slightly an uncomfortable relationship with kings and kingship. And I want to talk about this today, and her photo really is just to help us get into this whole concept of king and what it means to have a king. You see, I have a concern today that a bit like with our dear queen, who is a wonderful example to many, to all of us, and, and a great champion of um, all that she believes in, including her Christian faith, 
which she presents openly and freely and boldly, um, many of us could probably live our lives if she wasn't on the throne and be unaffected largely by her passing sadly. None of us want to wish that or pray for long health for her as long as uh, she's fit and able to, to keep going as our queen. We want her to carry on. Um, but probably if we didn't have a monarch, we'd just carry on in the same way largely. It'd be a period of mourning, we'd be upset. And I've got a deep concern that it's quite possible to live as if we don't have a king. Uh, and that's my conviction today, and so I want to bring some truth out of the Word of God that just speak into this whole thing of living with God as our King. And, and Tim, last week, many of you were here, Tim last week was speaking about a chap called Melchizedek. And uh, his story comes about in, Abra- in the stories about Abraham, Genesis 14, and it's here that we encounter the first mention of kingship in the Bible. And what you can see, I'm not even going to read the passage, there's lots of interesting names there, um, but different kings of different places and we see this sense that in this early days a king was really a tribal chief or a ruler of a city and just kind of this small group that each one would have their own king and so there's these fights going on uh, with all these little kings fighting against each other and that's how we first first see it and these city states and family groups would have battles and and then eventually there'd been an amalgamation or a kind of joining together of, of different tribes and they'd have a king because one would win a war over another one and they'd, they'd, con- they'd have conquests. And, and if you look at any nation's history, including England, you can see this history of bloody conquests and the rise of kings and queens and their fall again. And the Bible is similarly talking about this in, in the Old Testament. But Israel was meant to be different. In, in the midst of all these little kings who were representing their people and they were put in charge and, or they took charge and then they'd fight a battle and take some more land and fight a battle and take some more land and their kingdom would be bigger and they'd be more important. Israel was meant to be different. Israel was meant to have God as their king, meant to have God as their Lord. And, and the Bible talks very differently. This is where God's talking to his people. He says, now if you obey me and keep my covenant, you'll be my own, my own special treasure from among all the peoples on earth. For all the earth belongs to me and you'll be my kingdom of priests, my holy nation. And so in this setting where we've got nation after nation after nation, small groups becoming bigger groups, becoming empires with kings and emperors and people kind of having power for themselves, God's people are meant to be carved out as different. In the middle of all that, they're they're meant to have God as their king. And the people are to be this phrase, a kingdom of priests. We love the fact that our queen has served for 66 years, 8 months, and 28 days. And Israel's king has served for a lot longer. He's been reigning for a lot longer and ruling for a lot longer. And they were meant to be different. They were meant to live differently. This this sense that in the beginning of creation, God commissioned man and woman to, to rule over the world, to have dominion and authority and with God as ruling them, and they were to rule over creation. That's what we see in Genesis 1. But they weren't just meant to rule, they were meant to bear God's image, to bear the image of God to the world. God says, after looking at man and woman, he says, I made them in my own image. Made them in my own image to to bear my likeness. And there's this sense here that we're picking up where, where the priest in the Old Testament, this one who stands before God and represents the people to God, also represents God to the people. 
And Israel is meant not just to have one priest, but to be a kingdom of priests, where every single person in the nation of Israel represents God to the whole of the world. And we see this kind of sense in this, this little passage here, just a couple of verses, that God chose them from all the nations of the earth to be special to him, but then to go and be a kingdom of priests representing him to the whole world. So we see in this one verse that God the king is represented by the nation of Israel who is meant to show him and bring his kingdom to the whole of the earth as his priests. So rather than having one king, they're meant to have God as their king and they're meant to be the priests taking the word of the Lord to all nations. That's why he chose them, as his special possession. But we know that what happens is that Israel forgets this quite often. They forget why they've got a king. They, they love being special, but they forget what their purpose is in the world. And they forget why they've got a king at all. We see this in uh, James Pete preached on this a couple of weeks ago from uh, talking about God being holy. This passage was up on the screen again in the year that King Uzziah died. And he, he spoke about how holy God was. As, as we see this incredible picture of, of God's holiness and God's presence filling the temple. But notice towards the bottom of this passage as the living creatures are crying out, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of heaven's armies. Then goes on to say the whole earth is filled with his glory. And there's this sense that God isn't just king distant, but he's king present. God wants to be king among his people. God in the beginning and creation, Genesis 1, 2 and 3, wanted to be with his people, his image bearers, so that they would represent his rule around the world. And here in the Old Testament in the temple, we see that God constructs the temple to come and be with his people, to come and be with them, to be among them, to presence himself. And this sense that his train is filling the temple. His, his kind of robe is filling the temple and he sits on a throne. It's interesting, isn't it? The language, a throne in a temple. Why would you have a throne in a temple? You have a throne in a palace. And it's reinforcing this image of kingship again, that God is king. In some sense, it doesn't matter that they've now got a king called King Uzziah who's died because God the king is still reigning. God the king is still ruling and he's on a throne, not in a palace, but in a temple. And his glory is meant to go to the whole earth. Israel forgot why they had a king. They thought it was about them, not about their role in the world. Now, early on, all those little kings, the main purpose of a king is to save the people, is to protect them, to watch over them. When there's a battle that comes, the king is meant to be this person of position and power and influence who can summon an army together and rout the enemy. That's why kings often were people of already of wealth and influence and power and connections. That was their job. And actually that had been God's job throughout all of Israel's history. He'd been their protector and their guide. But they got to a point where they didn't like being different anymore. Not many of us like being different. We, we grow up through our school years hoping that we're not too different. Hoping that we can fit in. And uh, sometimes feeling like we're different to everybody else. And we don't realize until we're much older that everybody felt like that. We think we're the only ones who feels different and uh, felt differently. And actually we kind of can spend a whole many years, perhaps even a whole lifetime, feeling under this sense of insecurity that we were somehow different until we realize that everyone's different. 
But Israel didn't want to be different. They didn't want to be the only nation without a king. They wanted to be like all the other nations. And they cry out to God and say, God, give us a king. And this is a passage in the book of 1 Samuel when they've been crying out because they're under attack. And they cry out to God and the words on the screen say, uh, second line down says, you came to me and said that you wanted a king to reign over you, even though the Lord your God was already your king. All right, here's the king you've chosen. You've asked for him and the Lord has granted your request. And we get this weird thing in the Bible where God says, no, it's not good for you. But I'll go on then, I'll give you one. You can have one. So on the one hand, this won't help you much because I'm meant to be your king. And on the other hand, okay, I'll provide it. And we get this dual sense that God has, has provided what they've asked for and yet at the same time has advised them against it. You know, sometimes the worst thing that can happen is that you get what you ask for. You ever had that? Maybe as a child, you asked for a pet. And you were so excited about having this pet until it came to time to muck it out and the thing had pooed and... You need to, if it's a rabbit, you know, you need to clear it up and change the bedding and all the rest of it. And, you know, some of you will have done this. Some of you will have had the discussion with your kids. I heard of one family who should remain nameless because they are connected with the church. Who when their, their child, I should keep the gender nameless, <laughs> child asked them for a pet. They asked them to do an analysis of the risks and benefits of having a pet. And so there was a, a document produced that, that kind of looked at the analysis and, and what were the pros and what were the cons and what were the cost and what were the time implications. And the child themselves concluded that it wasn't appropriate to have a pet, <laughs> having done the analysis. That's brilliant. Wish I'd thought of that. Ours was just no. Or yes, you can have a goldfish because we can look after goldfish. But, but pets bring a lot of fun and a lot of love into people's families. Um, but that sense that sometimes you can ask for something, but it's the very worst thing to get it. Uh, and there are so many times I think I've asked God for stuff. And in his grace, he, it's felt like he's ignoring me. But actually, sometimes it would have been the worst thing I could have had to get what I was asking for at that time. Because it's only years later that you realize that God's provision was better. And his plan was greater than I could see at the time. But Israel cries out for a king and they get a king, and they discover pretty, pretty soon that power does funny things. That when you give someone position and power and authority, it does funny things and it corrupts people. And the kings tended to forget that they had a king over them. They tended to forget that there was one who was higher. And we see this most clearly in, in the book of Daniel where we've got a chap called Nebuchadnezzar. It's a great name. Nebuchadnezzar. And uh, he's the king of Babylon, um, and he's just forgotten that there's another king above him who's God of all. And uh, I've got just a couple of phrases on here. Uh, when you're reading through the, the Bible for a phrase like king of kings, you might think, oh, that's always about Jesus, always about God. But actually, in the Old Testament, it's never used of God. It's used of human kings. And Nebuchadnezzar is the king of kings because he has defeated other kings, and he's the best of the bunch. When you've got people around you telling you how great you are, it's very easy to believe your own publicity. It's important to have some people around you who can bring you down to size occasionally and just speak truth with love into your life. But Nebuchadnezzar has this sense that he's the greatest, he's the best, he's overall. And Daniel is one of his captives. And we find him using this phrase, king of kings, to Nebuchadnezzar. Now, there's, there's 
two chapters between the verses I've got on the screen. And what happens in between is that one day, Nebuchadnezzar, having been warned that he's not the king of kings, that there is one higher, looks out over his kingdom and says, wow, I've done well. Haven't I done a great job? Look at everything I've made. It's not quite the son, one day all this will be yours conversation. But it's the bit before that when he's just looking and going, do you know what? I'm pretty good. Now, there's nothing wrong with being pleased with what you've made, but Nebuchadnezzar hadn't made it. And that's the problem. He's looking out over what God had given and he's saying, well, look at what I've done. I'm amazing. And he goes through a very turbulent period in his life, as had been predicted before. And he goes through this time of, of almost losing his mind. And at the end, he comes to his senses. And this is his own confession. He says, I praised and worshipped the Most High and honoured the one who lives forever. His rule is everlasting. And his kingdom is eternal. Nebuchadnezzar discovers painfully what I hope none of us have to realize painfully. Is that we're not the king of the universe. There is one higher. And there is one greater. And there's one who we can look out on all that that surrounds us and we can say, God, look what you've given to me. We've played a part in it. Albert, how many years? 40-something years you've worked in the same job? 42. Paul, how long was for you? How long have you worked in the same job? 43. That's impressive, isn't it? 43 years. Uh, And you guys can look out on, on what you've done. But you can't say, look how amazing I am. You're brilliant, both of you. But in all of that, God has been your strength and your rock and your provider to be able to do what you've done in that place. And we mustn't lose that connection. I'm doing a survey of God as still being king to get to the points practically for us today. There's a day when magi come from the east, wise men. And they arrive in a city called Jerusalem and they go and see a man called Herod. Who's the king. And they ask this question, where's the newborn king of the Jews? Now, how many of you know that if you are the king of the Jews, that when you hear there's another one, you're not probably very keen on that moment, particularly if you're a despotic, paranoid, um, homicidal maniac, as King Herod happened to be, killing off your own family members and that sort of thing. So his response is not one of positivity. But we see at the beginning of Jesus' life that he bears this title, King of the Jews. We see at the end of his life, he's asked the same question. And Jesus never has this name on his own lips. He calls himself many things, but he never utters this phrase. But at the beginning of his life, others say about him, where's the king? And at the end of his life, it says over his cross, The king of the Jews. Bookmarked by this sense of recognized kingship where others are looking at him and saying, this is the king. Firstly, with honor and devotion from the wise men, the magi. Secondly, perhaps with mocking on Pilate's case to declare it over Jesus' cross. It doesn't matter because the words are true. The king of the Jews. And the king has a kingdom. Jesus did say that he had a kingdom. In that same discussion with Pilate, he says, my kingdom's not an earthly kingdom. If it were, my followers would fight to keep me from being handed over to the Jewish leaders. My kingdom's not of this world. So we see that God is king, that Israel in the old, through the Old Testament tries to have its own king, and those kings rule by themselves and want their own power and authority, and 
And at times they follow God and at times they don't. And Jesus is the king and he says, my kingdom is not of this world. One final piece before we look at some practical application for us. The king is coming. The king is still to come. For just at the right time, Christ will be revealed from heaven by the blessed and only almighty God, the king of all kings and the Lord of all lords. I love that title of, of Jesus. Revelation 19, 16, it says it's written on his thigh. As he comes riding in. The king of kings and the Lord of lords. I can see a few people thinking, oh, maybe that's a good reason to have a conversation with somebody about getting a tattoo. Jesus has got it written on his thigh, maybe. Anyway, ignore that. The king is coming and he's coming back to reign. So what can we see today for our lives? I want to see firstly that God is still king. He's still the king of the universe. He's king of the world. And that's wonderful. It's wonderful because I'm not. And you're not. You're not the king of the universe. You're not even king of your universe. And that's wonderfully releasing. It means you don't have to reign and you don't have to rule and you don't have to know the answer to everything and you don't have to fix everything and you don't have to be in charge because you're not the king. There is one higher and there's one greater. There's one who is still the king of kings. He's in charge of the universe. He's in charge of all things. And he's still reigning. When it looks like the world has gone to pot, and I don't just mean Canada where they've legalized it. I mean where the world has gone to rack and ruin. God is still king. And we read this. The sun, talking of Jesus, radiates God's own glory and expresses the very character of God. And he sustains everything by the mighty power of his command. He's reigning and ruling. And where it looks as though we're worried about the future, we're worried about Brexit and its effects, we're worried about political change, we're worried about turmoil in different countries of the world, we're worried about the state of the nations, this tells us that actually everything is only even sustained by the power of God's command. So where we think it's all panic and pandemonium and concern because we see in part, Tim was reminding us last week that, that God's eternal perspective stretches out much longer. And he's the king sustaining all things by the power of his word. The universe only works because he's sustaining it. Gravity works because he's sustaining it. Light travels because he sustains it. We hear sound because he sustains it. He sustains the universe by the power of his word. And there's more to come. Because Jesus taught us to pray, let your kingdom come. This is not just some distant sense where God has set something up and he's let it run like some watchmaker who sets a, a clock or a watch running and then just comes back from time to time to tinker with it perhaps to repair it. No, no. God is intimately involved in his creation. The temple represents God's presence with his people. The kingdom of priests go out to, to spread his presence and his reign and his rule. And they're to, they're to take the kingdom of God out. Why? So that the, the, the king might reign. And people might know his kingdom expressed. And Jesus says, my kingdom is not of this world. He said, pray to your father. Lord, let your kingdom come. 
God is building his kingdom. Secondly, we see this, that God is still our king. Not only is God still reigning and is still king, he's still our king. God is present. He wants to dwell. You know, I just mentioned about God's presence in the temple. There's a verse which talks about the temple becoming a house of prayer for all nations. God's plan was that the nations of the world would come to meet with him. It wasn't just that Israel would go out and represent him. It was that as they did so, the nations of the world would gather in his presence and see him as king and worship him there. God is still our king and he offers an invitation to come today into his presence. There was a bridge that needed to be built between us and God. Because we were far removed from him. I showed a picture of the Queen earlier, and I know some of you have been to garden parties and have met royalty at different points. Closest I've got is Prince Charles saying hello to me one day. Personally. There's only him and me and his bodyguard there. Happened to be on one of the Isles of Scilly. I was going into the post office. He owns them. He was pottering about. He said, morning. Oh, okay. Hello. Morning. Kind of caught me off guard a bit. I've not been to a garden party. I've got a hello. But some of us have access to speak to people who are high up and famous and royal, perhaps. But when you do, you're on your best behavior. You know, you dress up, you, you take some effort, you do your hair, if you've got any left. And what are we going? Why have you said that, Paul? Give it a polish, whatever. Just get yourself in, looking good, looking your best. Before the king, the queen. And we know, and we have this ongoing sense that if God is king, I'm not worthy. If he's great and he's mighty and he's up sustaining all things by the power of his word and I can trust him in, in the big things, but, but what about the state of my life? There's this gap between me and him and how can I come close? How can I enter the temple? How can I come to the one who reigns, who's got this, this awesome presence that we were hearing about just a couple of weeks ago? How can I come? And we read this scripture and many others that tells us that Jesus not just one from a kingdom of priests but the great high priest entered heaven and because he did we can have a firm and sure and certain hope because he understands our weaknesses he faced it all, faced all the same testings that we do and yet he did not sin and because of his death on the cross and his resurrection, we can come boldly into God's presence. Boldly into the throne room. Remember, God doesn't live in a palace. In the Old Testament, the temple is his, the representation of his presence. In the New Testament, in this picture, we're looking forward to an enthroned king. An enthroned Lord, who's Lord of all. And we don't come quivering and fearful. We come boldly into his presence. We come boldly into the presence of God. We walk right in, not because of what we've done, but because Jesus provided a way. 
And there we receive his mercy. We find his grace to help us when we need it most. So God is not just the king, he's our king. And he invites us to come into his temple, his palace, his dwelling place. So how do we live? How do we live with God as king? Well, the Bible is written over a period of quite a long time. Potentially a couple of thousand years. Certainly referring to historical periods of at least that long. And through that time, the people that are following God as king lived under despotic rulers. They lived under democratic-ish leadership. They lived without a king. They lived in subjection and slavery. They lived as exiles in foreign lands. They lived scattered and disparate from their own people because of persecution. They lived under the Roman Empire at various points who were this, this uh, such a varied empire where, where they would conquer a new land and, and wherever the people were, they, they kind of imposed peace. And, and the Roman peace was, was kind of secured across all the nations. It was, was peaceful. Nobody dared argue, but it was peace at the point of a sword. And all through that, people have lived with God as king. And actually, it hasn't mattered who'd been on the throne, who's been the emperor, who's been the politician, who's been the king, the queen, the ruler. It hasn't mattered one jot because they've still been able to live following the king. And the truth is this, that we can be quite worried about what's happening in our nation and perhaps justifiably so in some cases. But actually, this tells us that whatever is happening and whoever's in charge, we serve the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And whoever is above us politically, we should serve. Whoever's reigning over us, we should serve. Now, that's a bit of a countercultural message these days. But that's certainly what the Bible teaches. It says serve. God has put them in authority. So if you have the same boss for 43 years, it's unlikely. Serve them. You have the same power structure over you. Serve within it. doesn't matter who the boss is, who the government is. Pray for them. Uh, submit under them until they compromise your ability to live for the King of Kings. When they do, living for the King of Kings trumps serving authority. Beats. I can't use that word trumps anymore, can we? Sorry, for various reasons. Um, uh, overrules. So we serve the King of Kings instead of serving local authority or national authority or international authority. But other than that, we serve and we submit under. The name Daniel was on the screen a little while ago. Daniel served the high king whilst being a slave to a, someone who called themselves the King of Kings. And it didn't matter. He was still able to serve the high king of all. So we live as those serving him. But also, that service of the king radically overhauls our sense of who's in charge and where the power struggles are and where the authority is. We live as those serving the, the king. And the New Testament does something incredible when we see different groups of people who previously would have been in power structures side by side, working together. I think the one that is the most amazing, uh, there's, there's, all of them are amazing, but this is the one that's least spoken of. But I think the slave and free 
dilemma and, and divide where you've got those who were enslaved and those who were the lords of the slaves, the bosses of the slaves, and we see the New Testament kind of just doing this with them and saying, look, you're equal. You, you have equality before God. You are to not worry about, you know, societally, yes, you're like this and you're in a power structure where societally there's a certain rulership over the other. The slave master owns the slave and still rules over the slave. But actually, and, and so Paul teaches and others teach the slaves to obey the masters. That's the societal structure. But actually says slave masters, you're to treat them as equals. And he tips them round this way. And so in society, we function this way. But actually before God, we function this way. And he's teaching that there's this, 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 unit, this kind of equality and standing together and and. And I suspect that there were slaves who were leading in some of the early churches over some of the masters who were there. You know, and it just gets messy because actually God has declared a new day. He's declared a new day that these kingdom principles can be at work, that whatever's happening in society can be turned around and we can live with God as our king. That means that we can be confident of God's rule in our lives and our place in the world. This is a passage from 1 Peter, not talking about the Jewish people as an ancient nation, but about talking as well, including us in this, those who were not part of this ancient nation who are now brought in to God's people. Incredible privilege to be brought in when we were outside. Privilege to be grafted into the ancient people of God. And it says, this, Peter writes, but you are not like that, for you are a chosen people. You are royal priests, a holy nation. Is the language ringing a bell from the verse we had earlier on? Is there a kind of a sound that you're thinking, yeah, that sounds familiar? Because this is speaking about us, God's very own possession. It's the same language, isn't it? And yet we're, we're, Exodus was right at the beginning of the Bible, and this is right at the end, and we've got this now applied to us. As a result, you can show others the goodness of God, for he called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. And we've got this same language again, that God's chosen a people for himself, that they can know him and be his, but yet it's not about them. Their role is to know him and represent him to the world as priests and a holy nation. That's our calling. And so we should live as those who not only live under authority structures, but serve the king. We, secondly, we should live as those who are confident of God's rule in our lives and our place in the world. We are citizens of the kingdom of the king. And being a citizen of his kingdom doesn't mean I can be an idiot in this one. It means I represent him in this one. It means I represent his kingship. So when you go to work for 43 years or 42 years or however many years it is, when you go to work, you represent the king of kings. When you're at home, you represent the king of kings as royal priests and a holy nation. There's purpose in all that we're doing. There's purpose in our day-to-day -day life lived for Jesus because every day we represent the king of kings and we serve as those under his authority. We serve as those called out of darkness into light. Thirdly, we should be expectant of playing our part in what God's doing because he is at work. Fourthly, we should be expectant of his coming now and coming to reign.
there's been a lot of talk over some years, and I've done this myself, rightly so. We, we have to correct this kind of poverty mentality that we have often, where God is maybe interested and maybe up there somewhere, and still as Christians, we can have this separation between us and God, where he's up there looking over the whole world, but he's not really interested. That's bogus. God is with us. He lives with us. He dwells with us. Christ came to show us that God dwells with us. And God humbled himself by becoming man. He entered in. The, the temple picture, this sense of God dwelling with his people, God entered in in the presence of Jesus and the person of Jesus entered into humanity and was God made flesh. His presence amongst us like the temple, the tabernacle. And he changes people's lives. He revolutionizes them. And to do that, God doesn't need to diminish himself further. We don't need to shrink God down. God is still king and he's still magnificent. But as I raise God up and say that he's king, it doesn't make me a worm. It doesn't make you worthless. It doesn't make you so, so horrid and distant from God that he can't fix that. Because God comes close in the person of Jesus to bridge that gap. And so what we need to do is, is have a perspective where God is massive and enormous and king and he's lifted us up. He's lifted us up. He's changing our lives. He's revolutionizing our story and rewriting our story. And we don't need to pull God down or make ourselves bigger than God does to achieve this. I want to finish with this thought that we're children of the king. We're children of the king. There's some wonderful passages like this in Galatians, and I'm, I'm going to hold for us as I close today, hold two thoughts in tension. That God is king, we're his children. And that, that being a child of God doesn't mean we lose the kingship of God. Okay? So for me to be his child doesn't mean he's no longer my king. Paul writes this, you're no longer a slave, but you're God's own child. That's wonderful. You're no longer a slave to sin, no longer a slave to law, no longer a slave to death. You're God's own child. Paul also writes these words, if pleasing people were my goal, I would no longer be Christ's servant. Same book, same Greek word, doulos, slave, doulos, servant. We translate it slightly differently because we prefer servant to slave sometimes, um, but it's actually the same Word, you're no longer a slave, Paul says to the Galatians, but he's saying of himself, I'm still Christ's slave. Titus chapter 1, and this letter from Paul, a slave of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ. And so we serve one who's made us his children, he's welcomed us into his family, but he's still king and he's still Lord. I don't have to dethrone him to make myself his child. I don't have to dethrone him so that I can become better and he can become smaller. He remains Lord of all. And we have the incredible privilege as his children to serve him for the whole of our lives. That's an incredible blessing. Jesus says the same thing. I no longer call you slaves because a master doesn't confine in his slaves. Now you're my friends since I've told you everything the Father told me. That's an incredible verse, isn't it? Don't you love that? No? I know it's warm in here, but I'm finishing with this one. How does he then define friends? You're no longer slaves. You're my friends. The verse before it says this. You're my friends if you do what I command. And that to us sounds like slavery. 
but it's how Jesus defines friendship. You see, sometimes we can read these kind of verses and go, great, I can do what I like because I'm a friend of God. Woohoo! And it's true. And we should have that kind of joy and buoyancy and excitement because he's called us his own and he's welcomed us into his presence. But actually, in reality, that means that we're living for the King of Kings. And we're living as those who joyously serve him, who don't serve sin and death and hell anymore, but we serve the King and we live for him. Now, my conviction today is that there are times in my own life and I suspect there are times in yours where we forget that he's the king. And actually, what happens is that I quite enjoy finding a throne and sitting on it. And it might not be with anybody else watching. I might have no servants, but in my own life, for the things that matter to me, I'm quite difficult to get off the throne of my life at times. And today my conviction is that there are, I think there are some of us here who it's time to be dethroned because we need to let him be on the throne. Uh, and my role actually is to bow the knee before the one who's on the throne of my life. That means that I am his friend because he loves me and he treasures me. And yet my response is not only to love him and to, to be called into his presence, but to serve him with joy all of my life. And it may just be that today, as I've done a bit of a scattergun uh, review of Old Testament kingship, and we've come to see that God is the king all the way through, we've brought it to our own lives that maybe you're realizing, as I do, that there's a de dedication of my life to be made again today, that God is the king. Secondly, it may be that there's a decision to be made here today that you want to know God as your king for the very first time. That when I talked about God's presence coming and being available and, and you having the opportunity and us having the opportunity to come into his presence and that bridge being built between us and God, you just felt there's no way. There's no way I could get there by myself, but I need it. I want it. I want to know God as my king. Today, there's a decision to be made. Will you accept him as your king? And thirdly, it may be today that you know that God's your king. He's seated on the throne. You know that that bridge has been built and you've, you've been reconciled, but you've forgotten and you want to be recommissioned. You've forgotten that sense of commissioning as a kingdom of priests. You've forgotten your part that you play, that you're not, it's not just about you coming into God's presence and going away again, but there's a day of recommissioning today. But we're saying, God, if you really are the king, if you really are the Lord, then and you've made me a, to be part of a kingdom of priests, then send me to go because I want to represent your presence into this world. And so I want to give, as we close, I want to give three response opportunities. Dedication. That God might be the king of our lives again. Secondly, decision. That you may want to know God as the king for the very first time. And thirdly, commissioning to represent the king as we go. I wonder if we could have the band back on stage, please. I'd like us to pray. I'd like to give the opportunity for response. And we're going to have communion in just a moment. I'm, I'm determined in my own life that the greatest freedom will come not as I sit on this throne, 
but as he does in my life. The greatest joy will come. The greatest life itself will come when God is enthroned in my life, not me. You see, because when I am, I make all the decisions. I'm responsible for everything. It's my way or the highway. And God has to get on board with my plans. And that don't work too well. Because I see in part, but he sees the whole. Now, I'm aware this isn't the most exciting of thrones. It's a gray chair with a little bit of thread sticking out the side. But the issue isn't today the throne. It's who's sitting on it. And if you want to respond today, particularly because God has touched your heart to say, I need to be on that throne in your life again, then just an opportunity to come and respond before the king. Not before me, before the king. If you want to come and respond because you want to make a decision today to know Jesus, then you can come. And thirdly, if you want commissioning to be sent out to represent the king, if actually the things have got a bit focused on day-to-day life and you've, you know you need that sense of commissioning today to go and represent him, then again you can come. And just kneel or stand or sit before an empty chair representing the one who's on the throne. We stand together. Can, we sit? Can you lead us in a song? Is that okay? Thank you.